This is exciting. This is the last of our series, um, Biblical Justice in a Broken World. And as I've been into this, I've really been thinking, boy, we could go on a lot longer in this series. There's just so much to talk about and so much to explore. So um, I'm certain we're going to circle back to it at some point uh, in the near future. Um, I really hope uh, we will. And and hopefully it'll infiltrate um, a lot of what we talk about uh, going forward. And you'll see that a little bit today as we get towards the end. This is sort of the action season for... um, for this series, and so uh, that's why you've got cards on your seats, and, and we're going to be talking about that at the end. But it strikes me as I was looking at the text, we're going to go there in a minute, that uh, I was remembering Jesus and what, what Jesus did, really the first thing when he began his ministry, the public way that he began his ministry was to come for the poor. He said, I'm coming for the poor, for, for the captives, for the blind, and the oppressed. Those are the people that Jesus was coming to minister to, to seek after and to bless them. And uh, this is an interesting dynamic that the world grasps the vision of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus when the world sees the people of God going after that same group of people, the poor, the blind, the oppressed, the captives. It it gives plausibility in in the horizontal sort of realm to what's happening in the vertical realm between God and people. And so that's why this series is so important for us is because in some ways, just as God has come after us in our poverty and our blindness, in our spiritual oppression and captivity, just in in the way that God comes after us, as we go after others who are in similar circumstances, the world gets to see God's vision of redemption. So... It's very important, and the Bible teaches that, and that's what we're going to explore, and we're going to explore again this morning. So if you'd open up to uh, James chapter 2, verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, please, and we will give one to you. Uh, It's great if you can follow along. The words in Scripture are infinitely more important than anything I'll say. Um, Hopefully what I say lines up with it really well, but that's for you to think about and reflect on. Uh, Page 699 in that Bible that we hand out, James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. And so far in our series, we've talked about worship and justice and the incredible link between those two. How our worship becomes empty if we're not also living out our faith as it relates to justice in the world. We've talked about love and justice this last week, led by John Iwaki. And thank you for that. And we also are now going to be talking about faith and action in James 2, 14 through 17. So this is really our let's get going kind of talk on this subject. And the the first question uh, that we're going to ask, we're going to ask two questions, is, is your faith dead? And so look with me at this text and you'll understand what I mean. James 2, verse 14 through 17. James writes, what good is it? My brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead." 
All right. James never pulls any punches. He speaks very clearly to us. And uh, so there's a lot here for us to grapple with. Now, the first question, I've got two questions. Is your faith dead? And then I'll just anticipate. The second one, are you ready to make it alive? That's the second question. First one, is your faith dead? And, you know, this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this year. Um, you know, you've all been waiting a long time for that. Um, so we're excited about that. Um, and Luther had some thoughts uh, about the book of James that you may have heard of. And, and we've got to kind of grapple with this a little bit as we uh, enter into this question, is your faith dead? Um, initially, Luther called the book of James a, a, an epistle of straw or a, a right strawy epistle, if you want to say it that way, um, because he saw in the book of James a, a difficulty in the way that James talked about works in relation to faith. Uh, and so if you were to kind of to, 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 to isolate the problem that Luther is putting his finger on, you could pull out two scriptures that would clearly do that. And so let me, let me do that. We'll put them up there. The first one is Romans 3.28. So you have Paul saying something like this, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then we have James 2.14 where we just read, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, how do you put those together? And, and, and Luther put his finger on the difficulty and the challenge there. Um, we're going to spend all morning on that, but I want to briefly explain uh, a way that many people put those two together. And they, they talk like this, that what really um, Paul is talking about is justification. And that is by faith alone. Our justification happens by faith alone. But if you want to ask the question, if you want to evaluate the quality of that faith as to its sincerity then the absence of works is a big problem. So if you want to think about, is the faith really sincere and true? If there's an absence of work, then we have a problem. Other people say it much better than I can. So Luther himself, who, by the way, retracted his statement in later editions of his introduction to the New Testament um, translation. He retracted his statement that it was, an, it was an Australia epistle, and he had great things to say about James. So that's the part of the story we often don't hear. Anyway, Luther says this, Faith is a living, restless thing. It cannot be inoperative. We are not saved by works, but if there be no works, there must be something amiss with our faith. And some of my favorite commentators on the book of James, Douglas Moo, says, It is not that works must be added to faith, but that genuine faith includes works. That is its very nature. So we're getting into that realm of the sincerity of our faith. If it's sincere, it will naturally work itself out in actions and deeds and, and works in the world. And then one more. Um, this is Peter Davids, another comment commentator on the book of James who I really appreciate and have learned a lot from. Works are not an added extra to faith, but are an essential expression of it. So I hope that helps you to put together these two and to reconcile these two that have uh, posed difficulties for people over time. Very important that we do this because faith, as James says, without works, um, that faith, that kind of faith without works is not, is bogus. It's not actually faith at the end of the day. It's not faith at the end of the day if it doesn't have that sincerity to it. And that's what James is pointing out to us. If it's merely a verbal profession 
It is dead, he says. It's lifeless. It's worthless. It's useless. It does not save, actually, because it's not real at the end of the day. Now, for those of you who are in the seeking, spiritual seeking kind of realm, um, maybe you're dipping your toe into things of the faith, Christianity, and you're exploring, is this something for me? Is Jesus somebody for me? Um, This is a really important point for you to be thinking about. Uh, The way that we operate in our default mode is generally as human beings, we think that if I do the right things, then I will have favor, first of all, with the people around me and then ultimately with God. If I do the right things, I'll have favor with people around me and then with God. We try to win favor. Our default mode is to win favor by doing good whether that be from people or from God. And, 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 and we can talk about that as religion. You kind of get, end up getting on this treadmill where you're trying to do the right things and, and then you fail and you beat yourself up because you didn't do the right things and, and you think that you've fallen out of favor. And that's sort of the religion treadmill. And when Jesus came on the scene, he preached a gospel, a good news. That's what that means. That's very different from that religion kind of treadmill. The gospel says that God is going to come and in the person of Jesus Christ, give you favor with him right off the bat. And the result of the amazing thing that God has done and the transformation that it brings in your life is, gonna, is going to be you going out into the world to do the things that God would have you do that bring blessing to God, that are in obedience to God, that are good for you. The, the works come as a result of what God has already done in your life. He gives you favor through Jesus Christ. You don't have to earn it or do anything. That's the scandalous message of the gospel. And so if if you're in that realm of seeking and you're curious about the faith, this is absolutely critical for you to try to get your mind around. The world and our natural tendency says, if I do good, I will win favor. The gospel says, God gives us favor, and then we do good in response as he enables and empowers us. And when we fail, because we're going to, we're forgiven, we have grace. It's actually a beautiful, beautiful message that's incredibly freeing and incredibly life-giving. All right, now, what does it mean to, to be talking about deeds and, and works and, and these things that are in that James refers to here? Um, it's probably very broad, and, and Paul also shows that he has a positive posture towards works and doing good things. We're ultimately uh, to have our faith work itself out in that way. Um, and, and, and so it's, it's really can be defined as anything that is obedience to God, anything that we would do that would be in obedience to God. That's, that's what that refers to. But it's significant and interesting that James singles out here care for the poor. You see that? That's what he's singling out. And so this is a message. And if you read the scriptures carefully, you'll see over and over again that, well, to use the words of Jesus, the, the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed are continually set forth as being in need of our help and assistance and that is a good good thing that is that is good work that flows from faith and so if if that category of people and blessing those people is low on our priority list 
terms of what we do in response to God, then we've missed something in the scripture. We're not living in a way that aligns with, with the scripture and the Bible. Because, as I said, Jesus came, and we see it all throughout the Old Testament. We see it all throughout the New Testament on the lips of Jesus for the poor and the captives and the blind and the oppressed. Spiritually and physically so. Now, there was a letter that uh, the president of Wheaton um, wrote to the alumni uh, in 2004 that captures, in my mind, sort of the contrast between um, dead faith and living faith. And I want to read that to you. He says, in 1994, South African photojournalist Kevin Carter won the Pulitzer Prize for feature photography. The photograph that brought him fame depicted an emaciated Sudanese child crawling toward a feeding center under the hard stare of a nearby vulture. Anybody remember this photo? Some of you probably saw it. The image which so powerfully captured the horror of famine-stricken Sudan in the early 1990s drew international attention to both Sudan's suffering and to Kevin Carter's career. But with Carter's acclaim came the question... People wanted to know what had happened to the child. After snapping his camera, what had Carter done to help the dying child? Painfully, Carter admitted that after spending about 20 minutes framing the shot, he had simply walked away. Within two months of receiving journalism's most coveted award, the 33-year-old photojournalist took his own life. Kevin Carter had been raised in a devoutly religious home, but he had long since left his upbringing behind. Now he'd seen too much of the world's suffering and he could no longer cope. I'm really, really sorry, he wrote in his final note. The pain of life overrides the joy to the point that joy does not exist. Then he goes on to give a contrasting Story. He says, today the Sudan is still in turmoil, ravaged by a, a brutal civil war that has lasted more than 20 years and killed more than 2 million people. But Dr. Warren Cooper, a Christian, works as a surgeon in southern Sudan. The, suff the suffering Warren has seen among the patients is indescribable. And yet after five years in a hospital that has been called a living history museum of pathology, he has no plans to leave. How does Dr. Cooper cope? For Warren, the field of medicine allows him to live out his Christian faith, not just in word, but in deed. I could not think of a better contrast between an actionless faith that leads to death and a life-giving faith, as those two portray. And literally, in this case, that perceiving the illness of the world and failing to take action contributed to the death of the photojournalist. And in the other case, here's a person who is uh, elbows deep in the suffering and the struggle, responding with the empowerment of God. It's a living faith. So on the one hand, you have death, and the other hand, you have life. And I want to ask you this morning, this is the question we started with, is your faith dead? Is your faith dead? Do you, do you and, and we all do to some degree, we relate to the photojournalist who 
sees the suffering and the horror in this world, but turns and walks the other direction. And, and, and maybe some of us, can, we can relate at some times to the doctor who sees the suffering and rolls up his sleeves and gets involved. And what James is saying is if you really get the gospel, if you really understand it, you can't see and walk away. You can't just walk away. Because, because if you're sincere, if you really understand that God in his great mercy has come after you in your poverty and blindness and oppression and captivity to draw you to himself, if you really appreciate what God has done in that, you really see it for what it is, then it will be natural for you to respond when you see people in captivity, people oppressed, people blind, people enslaved, people in poverty. Which leads us to the next question. You're probably wondering then, how do I, how do I make my faith alive? How do I make my faith alive? Well, I want to talk uh, about how to do that. Um, there's three reactions that we have to our broken world that conspire to keep our faith dead. And I want to talk about those three uh, in the time that we have. The first one is powerlessness. And the gospel speaks to our sense of powerlessness. Um, I watched uh, the movie Chinatown. Some of you have maybe seen that movie. Um, Very famous line. One of the most famous lines appeared in one of the recent Pixar movies. Um, And the line is, um, forget it, uh, Jake, it's, it's Chinatown. Um, and you wonder, well, if you haven't seen the movie, what is that line? Well, the story is of a guy who is trying to save somebody, a woman, and he's in the midst of corruption and all kinds of suffering and um, illegal activities in Los Angeles. And the uh, end of the movie, he's caught in the crossfire, and the woman that he's trying to save is caught in the crossfire, and she ends up getting shot. And he's walking away dejected, and his partner says to him this line. And what the line is really saying is that, forget it, Jake, because you can't make any changes in this world. That the whole world is corrupt, the whole world is, is going in the wrong direction, and, and even when you try, you'll probably just make it worse. Real hopeful movie. Um, you're all going to go out and see it, right? Um, But that's the message of it. And it strikes at a deep place in our hearts because oftentimes we feel that way about the world around us. What's the point? Why should we even try to make a difference? Why should we hope or help or do anything? Because it's just all lost and overwhelming and it's too corrupt and there's no possibility of making a change. And the gospel speaks into that cynicism. We... we, Because we're the people of God, we're a people of hope in the midst of that potential cynicism, which is very natural on some level. D.A. Carson wrote a book called Christ and Culture, and in it he says this. He reminds us to be appropriately optimistic. He says sometimes a disease can be knocked out. Sometimes sex traffic can be considerably reduced. Sometimes slavery can be abolished in a region. Sometimes more equitable laws can foster justice and reduce corruption. In these and countless other ways, culture change is possible. 
More importantly, doing good to the city, doing good to all people, even if we have special responsibility for the household of faith, is part of our responsibility as God's redeemed people. And so we live in this tension. We are not ultimately powerless, not because of ourselves, but because of who God is and what he's doing in the world. And yet we know that the redemption of all things awaits the return of Christ. And so we live in that tension. But we embrace it. But we don't allow that tension to, to lead us into apathy and, and a sense of complete powerlessness. So our faith comes to life. The gospel speaks into our powerlessness and our faith comes alive. One of the things that kills our faith, the second thing, is frustration. Have you ever felt this? Um, this is when, you know, you are helping somebody who is in some kind of need and you just wonder, why don't they make better decisions? How do they get themselves into this situation to begin with? You know, why couldn't they just be like me and do better with their money or do better with their finance, with their uh, life decisions or their career, you know, and, 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 and you, you scoff and you get frustrated and then you say, you know, why do they always seem to see themselves as a victim in this situation, right? These are the kinds of things that crop up, come up in our minds as we enter into the difficulty of this world where there's oppression and captivity and blindness and poverty and, and all these things. And the gospel speaks into our sense of frustration. The Bible tells us um, that there are three causes of poverty. There's oppression, there's calamity, and then there's moral failure. There's making bad choices. That, that poverty comes, in the case of poverty, as a result of those three most often. And the great thing about the gospel is that it sort of levels the playing field. When we think about people making their, making their bad decisions, the gospel t- reminds us of our own bad decisions. The gospel reminds us that, that we have been moral failures as well. And, and, and to not look on people who may be in a different situation and to think that somehow we're better than because we're not. That's what the, the gospel is the great leveler. It, it, it reminds us that we are, we are more alike than we are different with all kinds of people we encounter, even those who on some superficial level may seem different from us. And, and the good humbling thing about that is that we can have patience with others. We can have compassion for others. And we also are reminded that oppression and calamity, um, were it not for God's grace, could have tremendous effect in our lives as well. It would take very little oppression and very little calamity to radically transform our own circumstances. And the gospel of this God who is, who is over the world and, and gracious and, and reminds us that it's, it's, that it's by His grace that anything goes in the way that we would want. And, and, and so that leaves us in a unique place because we're alike those who are oppressed and those who are captives, those who are blind, those who are in poverty. We're very much, we're all the same. It's who we are too. Okay, so we're, we're, we're all alike, but for some strange reason, and we just have to be honest about this reality, living in the United States, living where we live, living in this time, we're probably among the most wealthy, blessed human beings who've ever walked the face of the earth. 
even those of us who may feel like we're lower on the scale in relation to the people around us. The kinds of opportunities that we have and the freedom that we have and the, and, and the material wealth that we have puts us in a whole different category. And, and God has something to say to those kind of people. In fact, he, God modeled it because Jesus had everything. Jesus had everything. And what Jesus did to deal with our oppression and our captivity and our poverty and our spiritual blindness is he, let, he gave everything up to enter into the world, to take on flesh, to be present with us, to minister to us, and to serve us. And that's the way it goes with people who have a lot. To follow Jesus is to make the conscious decision to disadvantage yourself for the sake of those who are more disadvantaged. That's what it entails. That's what Jesus did. He disadvantaged himself for the sake of those who had need. And so the call on our lives is not to to be frustrated, not to scoff, not to be angry, not to be smug, but to enter in and to be sacrificial. Because that's what Jesus teaches us to do. So our frustration can be turned into action as we follow the example of Christ. And then the last one, very simply, is confusion. So sometimes our faith doesn't come alive because we have this sense of powerless. Sometimes we're so frustrated with the things that we see around us. And then sometimes it's because we're confused. We don't know what to do. Anybody ever have that feeling before? What do I do in the face of all the brokenness in this world? And I used to think that, you know, if I would just stand up here and preach the Bible really well and try my hardest... It would go into people's hearts and it would catalyze action and we would be out in the world, you know, doing all the things that I would envision we could be doing uh, in this area of, of justice and addressing the brokenness of our world. And then as I was reading the Bible a little bit more, I saw that there was this thing called leadership in the Bible, right? And, and, and this is about the time that we started our Count Me In ministry, um, to, to, as a community, covenant together to help us get off the dime, to get moving in the world, to do something in line with all that we're talking about so that we sort of break the dam and we start to actually... Leadership is about helping each other do that, get out into the world and take action. And the beauty of a church is that, is that we can have people who will lead us in that way. And that's what we've done with Count Me In. And, and I know that we've hoped for more of this, but this idea that, um, that, that we would begin relationships with people who are in need in our area people with whom we can build relationships, and that would sort of break the logjam, and then we could continue those relationships over time. And you would see, you know, the heart of God being manifest in the people of God in this particular place. That's our, that's our hope. And as we talk about deacons in our church, and this is an important uh, aspect of, of what we're doing at this time, as we talk about establishing deacons, and you look at the history of um, the, the, the way deacons are in the New Testament, you see that these are the people who lead in this area to take care of the poor in particular over and over again, waiting at table and the disenfranchised, or if we want to use Jesus' words, the deacons lead us in taking care of the, the poor, the captives, the blind, and the, the oppressed. 
And so as we're, as we're thinking about this series and coming to an end, we, we've got to have some moment where we figure out, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to listen to James today well? And not just sort of let it bounce off us and go on and continue to be what we've been. How are we going to be able to kind of go to the next level with this? And here's in my mind how I think some of this works. is The word comes into us. And we hear the teaching of, of Christ. We hear the teaching of James. And it begins to do a work and shape our soul and form us. And it begins to sort of pique our interest. And then that... Word of God gets mixed with our experiences and our giftedness. And and sometimes, very often, um, a broken element of our past where we've seen people or we've been the people in captivity or oppression or uh, all the different elements that we're talking about. And, and, And that mixture of God's word and our experiences and our giftedness comes together and it gives birth. And part of this is a little bit mysterious to some sort of call to action. And that's what we're hoping and praying for in this moment, that, that God would, would call you into action, that the Word of God would seep into your soul, seep into, make its way into your experiences and your giftedness, and give you a sense of calling. And as the opportunities arise, then you would be able to tap in to something, one thing that you could engage in to make this gospel come to life in high definition in your life and in the people around you. And so we want to catalyze that. I've been so thankful. I've been partnering with Danny Chi in this process. And and Danny is right over here. Raise your hand, Danny. Um, Can you just stand up even for a second? I I didn't ask you to do this. But Danny has been helping um, in, in the last little while with this part of our discipleship pathway, the get going part of our discipleship pathway. And what we wanted to do as we were talking about this, he's been gathering a group of people who've already been doing some of these ministries in our midst. You know, when we lost our our assistant pastor, Andrew Franklin, we lost a little bit of our heartbeat here in this area. And so um, it's exciting to see new people stepping up and Danny stepping in. And here's what I want to do. I want to put up a list here. I want you to take out that welcome card that you have. I'm going to put up a list And these are things that we're already involved in or we have aspirations to be involved in together. And I'm anticipating, we're expecting that deacons are going to rise up in our midst, if they haven't already, to lead us in some of these areas. And it will be easier for some of us who are maybe uncertain, but we sense the call of God in our lives to step in to ministry in some of these ways. And so what I'd like you to do is to take that welcome card and, and, and um, to put your name on it and, and then to look through this list up here and think about maybe, and you're not making a full-on commitment, you're just making a commitment to, to express your interest in helping in, in some of these areas or just to be informed about it. We have Count Me In coming up on April 22nd, and that's a Saturday thing where we go out and we help those who are in need, um, usually elderly people who are unable to take care of their homes, and we help them out. Um, But we end up getting in conversations, all kind of things happen. 
Um, the, the homeless ministry that was such an important part of our congregation for about five years, taking care, helping the people on the bulb, um, the city has cleared off the bulb, and that has morphed into some various different things. And one of the things is the shower program in Albany, and we're involved with that. One of our home groups is particularly involved with that, and so um, that's a way for you to get involved helping um, people who don't have a place to live get cleaned up and sometimes get ready for an interview, um, those kinds of things. Um, the Living Hope Neighborhood Church has a Saturday morning breakfast for um, those who are uh, without home or without food, and it's a way for us to get involved once a month or more frequently with that. It's not even so much, I was talking to Todd, who's been there a lot, not even so much about making the breakfast, it's about being present and talking and, and being with the people who are there. Um, support circle, crisis pregnancy. We have Albert Lee. I think Albert is with us this morning. And uh, they have a, a special dinner coming up on April 12th. I don't know if it's too late but um, uh, for you to get a seat there. But there are other ways to support support circle uh, with crisis, crisis pregnancy. Uh, mentoring at-risk youth. We've got some ideas and some potential open doors. Tutoring at-risk youth. Um, in the past, we have done more with uh, human or sex trafficking, human trafficking or sex trafficking. There's, an, there's uh, open doors there. Um, helping with city team and barrier rescue mission, which are both shelters and, and rehab. Um, racial and community reconciliation in the conversation that Danny has been having, that's come up as a topic that uh, several people have been interested in pursuing. So you might be, want to be one of those. And then prayer walks uh, and then uh, exploring Christianity Alpha. We've already, we, we had a, a group go out and do some street evangelism recently, which was really, really great. Um, to see. And I don't want to put that last one off as if it's a separate category. Actually, that's part of everything we do. Because unless what we do is pointing to the vertical gospel, the, the vertical good news, if it's just horizontal good news, then it's, you know, anybody can do that. It has to be a sign uh, pointing to the way that God has loved the captives and the blind and the poor and the oppressed. Um, so that's what we're looking at. So would you take those cards at this time and just prayerfully, I'm going to close us in prayer. And, and while we have communion, would you, would you uh, put on those cards maybe one or two areas that you'd like to be informed about? Give us your email or your phone number so, we can, so Danny can contact you. And we're just going to see what bubbles up in this season in our church and how God might knit people together um, to be able to pursue some of these areas together. And it takes the overwhelming nature of it out of it. Um, because none of us can do everything, but all of us should be doing something. And that's what, we want to be, that's what we want to be getting towards. So Lord, in this time, as people are pulling out these cards and they're writing on them, would you guide us? Would you lead us? Would you have your hand on us? Would you fill us with your spirit? Um, Lord, uh, you do things in our hearts when we're obedient to your scripture. Good things. And so we want that. And we want to be obedient because we love you. And because there are people who have need. And you've given us your gospel. Lord, make of us a church that on the horizontal and the vertical plane just shouts the glory of your good news to the world who is, that is broken and in desperate need. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.